that triathlon show 350. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and uh, apologies if you can hear from my voice that I'm not at 100% health. I've been putting off recording this intro for more than a week now, and uh, I'm getting to my deadline to get it done, but I'm still not quite healthy, just a bit of a bug that I caught, um, and uh, yeah, you can hear it probably but I just have to get this one done now in any way that I can. Apologies for that and hope I will feel better soon. Uh, on today's episode, I interview Tim Reed, who is an Australian coach and professional triathlete who has uh, an Ironman 73 World Championship title from 2016 to his name, along with multiple Ironman and Ironman 73 victories. And as a coach, he coaches both age group and professional athletes, uh, with uh, Sam Appleton being one of the well-recognized pros that he's working with. And in today's interview, we dive deep into Tim's perspectives on training and coaching, uh, as well as on racing and how to perform the best when it matters the most on race day. But before that, uh, we have to thank our sponsors. And also, I have a few scientific triathlon-related announcements that I'll go through first. So if you have zero interest in sponsors or announcement, I recommend that you skip ahead a couple of minutes at this point. Uh, but I'll try to be uh, quick and concise. First, uh, our Mallorca training camp for 2023 is now officially open for registration. The dates will be the 25th of March to the 1st of April of 2023. You can read more on scientifictriathlon.com and you can also register there on that training camp page. And uh, I really hope to see you in Mallorca. We had a fantastic week this year on our inaugural camp and I'm confident that it will be even better next year. Uh, the second announcement is that I finally finished the advanced sprint distance training plan that I've been working on for a long time. And as normal, if you've been following along for a while, I always want to give a special opportunity for early adopters of any of my new training plans. So until the 14th of August, which is this coming Sunday, if you listen uh, the week of this episode's release, you can get 60% off from the regular price of the plan before the price returns to normal. Uh, so the easiest way to do this is to simply go to scientifictriathlon.com, go to the training plans page, and there you'll find the links and discount codes that you need to purchase the plan for 60% off. And uh, finally, this is not a new announcement. I have talked about this before, but I just want to remind everybody that we are also running a camp in Portugal in January. And uh, Mallorca is our flagship event with uh, a lot of athletes of many different abil abilities, uh, whereas Portugal will be uh, a smaller camp for a small group of athletes of a fairly similar level uh, and a fairly advanced level. Uh, so we do have uh, a handful of slots left for this camp. So check out the details on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, email me with any questions about any of the above. Uh, and uh, if you're interested to learn more or register, uh, I will be happy to help you out. Now, big thanks to Precision Fuel and Hydration that create sports nutrition products uh, and hydration products. And they help you use these products effectively through a range of free tools, services and content. And they have created a fantastic fuel and hydration planner uh, that uh, you can use. It's on their website and it's a one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you. It's free and super easy to use. It only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions and then you get a detailed, simple and effective race plan. Uh, they also have free video consultation 
as consultations and as a listener of the podcast you can get 15% off your order of the range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to Roka Roka produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses uh, Roka started as a wetsuit company and uh, that is one of their most important products still to this date. Uh, they have a fantastic range of op- options from the entry-level Maverick that is still extremely high quality all the way up to the flagship model, the Maverick X2. All of Roka's wetsuits come with the patented arms up technology which maximizes shoulder mobility. And then depending on which model you choose, uh, there's uh, a ton of other amazing features and uh, uh, technology that has gone into the development of these. So by all means, go to roca.com uh, to read all about the models and figure out which one is is the best for you. And if you want to order, uh, make sure to go to roca.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roca order. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Tim Reed. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Tim. How are you doing? I'm really good. Um, thank you for having me on. I know it's been a, a long time coming, but I appreciate your patience with uh, waiting for me to find some time. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it's uh, we're managing to do it now that you're also based in Europe, which makes uh, time scheduling a bit easier rather than uh, being or in Australia. Um, so, which brings us to, I guess, can you introduce yourself uh, a bit more for people that may not know you and, uh, yeah, tell us who you are and what your background in the sport is. Yeah, so my name is uh, Tim Reed. I've um, I started off in the sport, I guess, as an age grouper, you know, soon after finishing school and did that for five or six years before turning professional and then, um, uh, you know, one year sabbatical from work to race as a pro turned into 11 years now as a professional and still racing as a pro but sort of um, also spending a lot more of my time coaching and putting back into the other athletes and um, I guess starting the starting the transition into life after after racing yeah do you see your, see yourself doing that uh, both of those in parallel the racing and the coaching for a couple more years or so or do you have any, what are your plans in that regard uh, I'm not sure <laughs> um, I, I thought at the end of last year I was really suffering some like real chronic fatigue uh, symptoms and I went from you know I, I had a couple of podiums and a second and Australian champs in early in the year and then I almost couldn't get out of my way um, for a block of racing in the US and sort of finished the year very depressed about racing thinking all right that's me done but um, you know I feel then my sort of health got better and I you know I took a very long break and I really missed training and just being healthy and racing and I thought well you know even if I only train up properly for a few races each year um, it's still something that excites me and I think I need to uh, I, I sort of need it for my personality so I, I don't I don't know how many more years but um, certainly uh, while I've still got some sponsors I'll do the best I can for uh, several several races each year and then um, try and create value outside of racing in other ways I guess. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, as listeners of the show are uh, familiar with, uh, we will talk mostly training, coaching, that sort of thing, and not so much your racing history, but uh, you have been on plenty of other podcasts discussing that. So I can put some links in the show notes for uh, people that want to hear more about you as an, as an athlete. Uh, but today we'll focus a bit more on the, on the coaching side, even though, of course, that will be 
influenced by your experiences as an athlete as it as it should but if if we start with that training discussion and coaching discussion how would you describe your your approach to triathlon training yeah i think it's a um i think you know mentioning my racing experience i think it's a real mixture of um science uh and racing experience but also i um i've always felt like one of my strengths is getting on with people and understanding people and realizing that there's a big regardless of the um scientific principles or the training principles that the athlete's personality can have a big influence in what they need and how they how they approach the sport their recovery what sort of uh, mental approach you need to take with them to get the most out of them uh so yeah i think it's a i like to combine um a bit of everything um with my approach and um Certainly, it's been a very didactic journey, and I wouldn't. Uh, I'm still learning every day with coaching, and and sort of trying never to become closed-minded with with the approach. Because as much as uh, we think sports science is settled, I think you can see every few years there's you know quite a big switch with different approaches and different nutrition, uh, sports nutrition approaches and training approaches. And I feel like. Um, it's a constant journey and um, I'm definitely along for the ride and trying to keep an open mind the whole way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you mentioned getting along with people and how people, people's personalities being a big, big influence in how they respond to training. I think that's when we think about the science of endurance sports, we often think about just the sports science aspect, but we forget about things like uh, psychology and behavioral science. And there's a whole bunch of other things. And of course, it's not just about the, the science, but, um, we sometimes we talk about think about those as soft skills, but there there are also scientific um, there there are scientific findings in those fields if you go out and look for them. So so it's not it's not just woo woo in in that regard either. It makes com- complete sense that different personalities will react different to to different approaches, and and you need to uh, take that into account whether it's more of an experience based um, approach or not. Um, but if we go to the the different disciplines and discuss some, maybe you can give some key principles of how you would improve help an athlete improve in each of them so if you start with swimming what are a couple of key tips you would give for an athlete that wants to improve their swimming yeah i think swimming is a really interesting one because um uh, even though we know that the sort of the the basic principle of predominantly aerobic work to anaerobic works for endurance sports i think a lot of athletes just jump into squads and they're, they're doing way too much anaerobic swimming and the downside to that you know, apart from just the physiological stress of turning up each day and smashing yourself, is they start to practice poor form in the water. And we know how important um, just making good technique autonomous is. And so one of the main things I work on with athletes, especially if I can see that they're not holding uh, relatively good technique in the water, is, is, is actually getting them out of swim squads, if, especially if they can't control themselves or drop down a lane and, and have some a little bit of swallow swallow their pride a little bit, is uh, bringing in a lot more aerobic training into the swim and treating it almost like I would treat the bike and run, um, you know, and, and pretty much only having, you know, one to two really hard swims a week and the rest is sort of in that very aerobic zone two range and, and working within that range to um, try and try and build the efficiency at, at a, you know, at a cellular level, but also just building efficiency with their technique because uh, I've seen it, seen it a lot and have been part of squads where, and I, where I uh, 
myself and many other athletes are just smoking yourself trying to trying to keep up with a you know three k's of threshold or two k's of threshold and and uh you get into a race and you're swimming worse than ever so i've seen some great improvement especially with um the third tier second tier and third tier pros that i take on which are sort of the professionals i prefer to take on anyway because i feel like there's a lot more to gain rather than someone who's already going on going really well um I've seen big changes in their swimming actually through pulling them back from doing too much anaerobic swimming. Uh, so that would, yeah, I mean, I guess that would sum up my swim approach. I, I get a lot of guys to do less squad swimming if they can't, unless the squads run really well where they do really um, take a polarised approach to the to their training. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's such a good point. And uh, I literally, last week, I talked to a couple of athletes about that and say, said the exact thing that you just said, that I tried to explain my approach to, to swim training because I'm explaining why it's different to what they might be used to from swim squads and said that, yeah, I treat it more like the bike and the run, like like you just said. And I agree with all of those things that, that you said and have, have experienced that myself as well. And it's one thing to have three k's of threshold swimming that's actually not that bad but the thing is it's never threshold is it it's it's a, it's an all-out how how fast can you go for for the set when, when you're doing it in that environment normally yeah and also if they're doing it too often um it just yeah. they just end up gray zone swimming too if it's every day you know oh yeah there's, yeah. there's no real you, you can get to the point where you're so tired that they don't even swim threshold it's just it's just a sort of that zone three range and um you know which has its place but you know, I still think the zone two in the water is super, super important. Yeah, yeah, and that's where even squads that are well run and have a strong endurance component, the pace there is often dictated by the fastest swimmer of the lane, and that might not be appropriate for. And and it's so easy to you you do get sucked into with even with the best intentions, you get sucked into that same pace and uh, thinking that well, actually, my endurance pace is I'm going really well right now, but in reality, you you might just be pushing it a bit harder than you should. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what about biking? Yeah, cycling's um, complicated because it's such a strength endurance based sport, um, and so you have some athletes who have a, a, a huge aerobic history and still aren't riding well and and you sort of have to look at it and go well what's holding them back here is it their aerobic efficiency or is it their straight up strength endurance and so there's certainly certainly with athletes who are newer to the sport who don't have that aerobic history um you know the very traditional approach of a lot of aerobic training um and then you know sprinkling in the higher intensity work is you know for the first five to six years of an athlete's um I guess training a career or training um, life. It's it, I think that's super important. But when you get those athletes who just aren't putting it together, who have a huge aerobic history, uh, I, I take a more of a strength endurance approach. Um, sometimes a lot more gym work to try and build up build up the, um, the straight up raw strength and power. Uh, so. Yeah, it's an individual approach. I don't think there's one one approach with cycling that will get um, get improvements. I think you've really got to look at okay, what's an athlete's weakness on the bike and what's holding them back. So, uh, even you know, throughout my own career as an age grouper, I think I had the I was lucky to have a coach who was just very volume based. And then um, when I switched to someone like Matt Dixon, who was very much about 
strength endurance and key intervals, I felt like the two combined to help me have a few really good years there on the bike. And um, so I try and try and take that on and, and use that and, and try not to come to an athlete, you know, try not to approach the coaching on the bike with a, with a real one size fits all approach. Um, really try and work out where, what's lacking with the athlete. Hmm. In those scenarios, if you come to the conclusion that an athlete is is in need of that type of strength endurance work, can you give some examples of uh, what sort of sessions you would you would give to to uh, yeah to get to that issue? So yes, I mean straight up, just gym work is important. I think. I mean, it's important across the board for preventing injuries and staying consistent. But I think you do start to see some really big improvements on the bike too, with and it's so time efficient. And then, of course, there's the classic strength endurance sessions. You know, just heading out for five times eight minute hill reps um, at lower cadence, and and then you you can go even quite a lot shorter and and bring the power up even further. I think the one thing I'm pretty strong on with those longer strength endurance intervals is it doesn't have to be super high intensity um you know when i watch someone doing a strength endurance interval and their their spine is bent and they're favoring one leg and all that sort of thing i'd rather they held tt position even if it's a flat strength endurance interval so they can do that and um using their core actually getting their glutes to fire properly uh so i think form and, and strength endurance together create can help to create a really a strong athlete um But yeah, interestingly, you know, the science is pretty mixed on it. You know, when you look at, um, like most sports science, it's pretty limited studies and and um, I think they're very much cycling based. But for me, you know, those longer strength endurance intervals ranging from, you know, 50 RPM to 70 RPM work, sustained intervals from up to, you know, up to 20 minute intervals, but not super hard. I find uh, for a lot of athletes who are just, don't quite have that muscular resilience to get off and run well um even if they're biking well i feel like you can get some really great improvements mm, yeah and i mean you're, you're absolutely right the science is mixed but i think that um we have to consider what is the outcome that we're training for and as you say running off the bike that's not what's tested that's not the the outcome measure it's improvement in vo2 max or maybe improvement in threshold or lactate at four millimoles those are typical measures that we we see even time trial performance sometimes which is a more relevant outcome metric but even then yeah again that's not necessarily what's holding us back it's more about yeah how, how well can we run off that bike and, and that's one of the main things that i guess you're really wanting to address with the strength endurance when it comes to long distance triathlon in particular yeah i think it's a really good point in general with a lot of the science that we try to implement or trying to carry across into triathlon is so much of the research around fueling around is uh, around the types of different training is often based around uh, what improved a 40k time trial or what improved a 5k run you even look at like the effects of altitude training or and so you always have to take it a, a, a little bit carefully and realize okay this is it's very hard to do a controlled study on you know an eight hour race or a four hour race <clears throat> so the science is there but you i think it's um you you, you look at it you you can try and emulate it and see what effect it gives but realize that it's very hard to get proper controlled um, studies looking at the effect on triathlon performance yeah yeah and uh moving on to running then uh, what would we say are the key tips that you would give there yeah so i i, I don't like to be too volume based on the bike but I, I do think volume 
is important on the run in terms of people could be doing to compare the two you know people could say oh i've been riding 800 kilometers a week and in in my mind that doesn't really mean anything because you know you could be sitting behind a motorbike for a 200k ride and it takes you three hours or you could be sitting in a peloton um you know in zone one ticking along at 40 kilometers an hour whereas on the run i feel like this this might be a bit controversial but i don't feel like there's any there's never junk mileage in that there's always a stress on the body no matter what pace you're going it has to all be factored in and it's not that it's not the worst measure of the load that you're doing uh so if someone's even if a great runner is doing an easy run at five and a half minute kilometer pace it's still every time their foot hits the ground it's still their full body weight going through the leg and so um i do i I keep an eye on volume for sure and and certainly um trying to trying to get volume up to a point where it doesn't affect the cycling and swimming uh, and is absorbable and showing benefits is is a pretty big part of how I would coach an athlete um, and you know I think the other the other approach I take with it is to steer clear of uh, chronic volume with with um, my triathletes so we might do you know a five to ten day running block but then we might back off for quite a bit and bring back the cycling um, I find you know, there's no doubt if you, with especially with pros, you, if you can get up to that 90, 100 kilometer a week run volume, it's great. But I find if you start doing it week in, week out, the cycling just, you see the cycling really drop off. They start to sit too low in the water and in the swim. So uh, it's, I try to steer clear of, yeah, a chronic style of run volume, but it is an important part of the training and having little blocks of, of high volume running, I think really works. Um but of course, again, that's very individual. You know, I have some pros who just can't get over eighty kilometers a week without getting injured, and, and then some pros who are, who are just bulletproof, and you can you can throw a lot of run mileage at them, and they and they continue to improve. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how specific. And, and, and eighty is quite a lot. Uh, you, you would see a lot of pros that are doing significantly less than that. On if at least if you look at it in terms of a, you know. <laughs> quarterly average or something like that it might be more 50k or 60k or even 40k in some in some cases 100 percent. i mean i say weekly mileage looking at their bigger weeks you know i probably yeah. if you right. averaged it out it would be a lot lower for many athletes and and some some athletes i mean depending on what they're good at too you know if they're if they've got a um if they're hugely aerobically efficient then you might be working more at you know higher intensity closer to higher lactate levels to sort of um you can get that that impact through the legs through faster running and if they're um you know not super aerobically efficient then you know sometimes you got to go the mileage route and really build up their sub threshold efficiency Mm, yeah and what would that would that potentially look like just easy or easy to steady running or would you do some maybe some threshold running in that in that case or how, what would that look like i think you'd still i still like to include probably all, all intensities um in the in the week but it might just be it's the proportion that would change a lot um but predominantly for predominantly that for those that need to improve that sub threshold efficiency it's just yeah aerobic aerobic mileage quite comfortable um typically because people tend to get less injured with that and but then certainly there's some athletes you know i've got i've got one pro who he actually seems to get injured more when he's running slow he's not the most balanced biomechanically but when he's running quicker it's almost like 
there's um, the leg length difference and the issues he have play less of a have less of an impact. So it's uh, it's a tricky one, but um, I think similar to the cycling, it's it's working out what's the primary what's the primary limiter and then um, building the uh, the run training around that. And interestingly, especially now, I'm realizing more and more as I start to get more into testing is how much that can change. Uh, after a year or two so what someone needed two years ago could be very different to where they're at now Uh, so it's a sort of dynamic planning I guess and not being too stuck on this athlete responds well to this therefore they must always have this it's where are they at now what's their weakness what do we need to do for this time and then we'll we'll retest and go again in six months time and see if we need to change that um, stimulus. Yeah, uh, w- one more question on running, and then I want to follow up on that on testing uh, in general, not just in running. But but when when you prescribe the sort of the, the easy aerobic running, how particular are you about it being, for example, very easy or just comfortable? Is the athlete able to choose themselves how what feels comfortable for them, or do you have specific pace or heart rate targets? And and are you somebody that favors more? really the, keeping the easy running really easy or are you okay with it being more kind of steady zone two rather than zone one yeah it's again it's sort of individual but uh, i find it interesting how much people talk about oh i do the 80 20 approach and i'm like yeah but within that 80 someone running at low zone two compared to high zone two can be a massive difference and so yeah. um i do a lot of different sessions um within that zone two range, you know, so that a lot of getting to the top of zone two, working at aerobic threshold, uh, particularly for those athletes that (laughs) have, you know, that are quite efficient at the lower intensities, um, their, their propensity for injury plays a big role. So it would depend also on how much time they've got. You know, if, if an athlete doesn't have time to go for a two and a half hour, super easy trail run, then we might, and they've only got an hour and a half, on a Sunday, then it would be, we would spend a a fair bit more time, you know, maybe including two times 20 minutes within that block at the top of zone two. Um, So yeah, there's no, it would depend basically is the, is the short answer, but, Mm. uh, but, but the, but I guess you do, you, you do look specifically at where you are and that, that depend on, that depends on the athletes, but it's not just about easy running uh, and and then it can be anywhere from, 5.30 5.30 to 4 minutes flat, it's more specific than that. 100%. So it's very rare that I would say just go for a zone 2 run. It'll be, hey, we need this one at low zone 2, mid zone 2 or high zone 2. Or there is occasions where, uh, especially if I can't see an athlete regularly, I'll, I'll basically give them options based off their HRV and sleep data. So I'll be like, okay, this is the long run. If your HRV is high, your resting heart rate's low, then let's let's include the last thirty minutes at the top of zone two, and if you wake up and you're tired, exhausted, let's just stick to low zone two and and focus on just keeping it relatively low stress. Right. Yeah. So so then if we go to testing, which you mentioned there, yeah, and you said that you're getting into it uh, more now. So yeah, can you tell us about about that? What what kind of testing are you doing uh, in the different disciplines and, and how do you use that? Yeah, it was hard because up until this year, really, because I was so focused on my own training. So, you know, but I also limited the number of athletes I coached, but certainly doing a lot more lactate testing now. Um, we I've always looked at um, measuring ketones and things just to see, not necessarily chasing 
you know, full-blown ketosis or anything like that. But certainly for athletes that uh, seemed very carb-dependent or needed to improve their metabolic efficiency a little bit, um, just just working on, for those that are time-crunched, you know, maybe doing slightly lower-carb sessions uh, for shorter durations when they don't have the time to head out for the five- or six-hour rides that the pro athletes do. Uh, a lot of a lot of sub threshold testing just to it's always hard because it's hard to control all the variables and um, you know certainly in the next year or two I want to have a bit more of a lab set up back home so that I can do better testing but um, yeah I think uh, yeah just just getting people to start to check in more on VO2 max testing is important um, is yeah I guess they're the main the main tests I look at but the the biggest test that I like and and is is actually getting people to race and just looking through the data and finding out okay where did we fall flat here um, was hydration adequate was your fueling adequate adequate and then if those two are fine then let's look at what the what training stimulus we need to move to because you can get a lot out of um, you can get a lot out of just looking at at races and and working out okay where did we fall short here yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And strength training, you mentioned already that as part, something that can be really important for the cycling part. But uh, yeah, can you give us any other uh, tips on strength training or tell us about how you use strength training? Yeah, I think especially when as, um, you know, in the last few years, I think, uh, you know, I think 2019 before COVID, I had some of my best races and but I was also <laughs> had three kids and a working wife. And so I was. I think for uh, time efficiency to get the, the conditioning in your legs that you need for Ironman, you know, one of the biggest things that holds people back is muscle breakdown. I found the strength training hugely important from a straight up performance perspective and getting that muscular resilience. But, you know, on the, um, for me, I've, we always say, you know, with my coaching partner and I, that's consistency over craziness and, the best way to be consistent is to stay injury free year after year. And and I don't think you can argue against the ability of strength training to prevent injuries longer term. Um, it can be very hard for people, especially in that first four to six weeks where, you know, they're getting sore from the strength work. It's affecting their sessions. Um, and they on a short term level, they might actually go backwards with some of their training because they're sort of adding in another quite significant stress. Um but longer term, I think if you can stay consistent with it and you get to the point where it's actually quite hard to get really sore from the strength work, but, you know, you're getting mild soreness, I think it, it can really pay off longer term in preventing injuries. So certainly outside of the race-specific phases, I, I don't, we have all our athletes doing at least, uh, they're not even long sessions, two times 20-minute strength sessions a week um and often just two or three little exercises before a long run or after a long run or even a bike um just to realign and get things firing well is uh really a big part of the program and then you know in the off season up to three sessions a week uh especially for the athletes that really need it so um that's sort of the approach i take and and i know it's uh you know there's certain coaches out there who think you can get all the strength work out of the session, out of certain sessions, um, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think that um, for long-term development and staying injury-free, uh, I think strength training is crucial. Yeah, so certainly on the 
on the bike, it's a big difference to just turn the the cranks over compared to actually lifting lifting some weights when you do the the math on the on the newtons that that you're actually producing. Um, but you mentioned there two times twenty minutes. Uh, that sounds almost like is that something that the athletes can do at home, so home based training, or do you, do you still need a, access to a gym for for that? No, we we get athletes to get some basic equipment um, and try and get them to do it from home. I mean, as you know, triathlon can get pretty expensive. So if you're adding in a gym membership for only forty minutes of strength work a week, it sort of it seems yeah. a bit pointless. So I, I also think if you make it as easy as possible for athletes to to include it um then that that helps of course some people you know this is where the psychology comes in too some athletes you know that you need to send them to a gym to get the work done because they need to be in that environment of people grunting and lifting <laughs> to, to get motivated to do it but uh yeah for, for the i'd say the vast majority of our athletes just have some basic gear at home a couple of kettlebells a bosu ball a swiss ball uh and that's really you know all that you need i mean a lot of it is just that neuromuscular connections and the activations to sort of fire well um you know you see it even with people doing a set of squats when they come in and they're fatigued from all the training you can see one one glute firing you know a few mm-hmm. minutes like a, a fair bit faster than the other one by the time they've finished the four sets of eight you can see that the both glutes are sort of almost firing simultaneously so it can sort of correct those the activation as much as anything yeah yeah so so what kind of uh, of sets and uh, or reps and weights are, are you doing is it yeah are you, are you working more on high reps lower weights uh given that yeah if it's home-based you can't really have a mo- most people can't have a squat track at home even though some people do uh or yeah do you manage to get uh to be creative with exercises and still do some relatively high weights with with lower reps yeah, I think um, the science would, in my mind, from, at least from what I've seen, sort of supports uh, low reps, high weight, um, which, like you said, is pretty hard doing it at home. So with a lot of the core work, we still go higher reps. Um, but with things like, uh, you know, the basic, um, you know, whether it's single leg, let, uh, single leg squats and or Bulgarian split squats and things like that, we, d- we don't go... I don't go too high reps. Um, I'm more about perfect form, even if the load is not that high. Because, like I said, I think the a lot of the advantage is actually through um, the connections between the brain and the and the muscles and and getting the body firing really well. Um, but certainly for the the more elite athletes, that's where we'll get them into the gym and do some um, pretty high load, um, low rep um, strength intervals, strength sessions. So. Uh, that's that's where it would mainly head but when it comes to certainly when it comes to um closer to races the load comes right down and i'm just all about form and and little you know enough strength that there's maintenance there but we don't we don't target any soreness you know from a couple of weeks out yeah yeah um moving on then uh another training question how do you view periodization uh, in the yearly periodization for for a long distance triathlete yeah, it's, it's super hard for pros, especially the Australians, because they end up racing all the year round. I think it's it's, uh, it's often to our detriment, but we we can't say no. Um, I I think uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan still of the the real traditional periodization approach, especially for athletes who are um, 
especially for athletes who are injury prone or they're starting in their first five to seven years of, of racing, I just think it makes it makes sense um, to keep people injury free and building up consistency. I'm also not set that that's the only way to, to do well in races. Like I've been playing around a little bit this year with reverse periodization, mainly on myself, but um, I could see the see how that could work with with an athlete who's already got a huge aerobic base and, you know, their aerobic efficiency comes up to scratch with, you know, very quickly because of that. You know, you've got all the cellular and metabolic changes pretty much intact from 10 years of training. Do you really need to do three months of base work? Um, so I don't, I, I'm not 100% sure on uh, different types of periodization, but I'm, I still think for the, for the bulk of athletes, um, there's, there's a lot to be said for that traditional approach. Yeah. And what would you say about age groupers? Uh, I don't, I don't actually know how do you coach mostly pros or age groupers or is it a bit of a mix? I really limit my number of pros because, um, yeah, I think it's, I get quite stressed and want to do a really good job with them, you know, when it's their livelihood. So, um, no, it's predominantly age groupers. And I think the, the traditional periodization is, um, the most relevant for them. Hmm. Yep. And another question relating to age groupers is, do you have any thoughts around really time crunched uh, athletes that are training on, let's say, 10 hours or less per week, but still want to uh, do reasonably well? Yeah, if, it's funny. I actually think I enjoy coaching those athletes the most. Um, you know, there's plenty of little hacks along the way. There's no, you know, there's never a full replacement for the athlete who has all the time in the world to do the training. So um, it's not to say it's, you know, there's certainly not optimal because there's no doubt that just big aerobic volume tends to work but um for those that are 10 hours or less um you know i think that's where you can really play around with different fuel sources and try and um stimulate stimulate the same metabolic benefits from a that you would get from a six hour ride just fueling as normal to potentially a lower carb higher fat ride you know that might be two and a half hours instead you know there's uh then you know using things like heat stress um to you know is is a typical way i guess you're trying to maximize benefits from very short shorter duration sessions um we talked about that zone two training and and i think with athletes who are 10 hours or less especially on the bike and in the swim we'll do a lot more work at sort of aerobic threshold instead of that low zone two it's just you just don't have time to you know get the the longer benefits of um of, of that low zone two that's just you know if they've only got an hour to train I, it's i feel like that low zone two week you need to be 90 90 minutes plus to really start ticking into the benefits of it so yeah we work a little bit higher intensity within the zone two range for sure um the strength training becomes very important because if they don't have time to do the the run volume we've got to try and create those those um micro tears in the in the legs from strength training so that they still have the resilience off the bike and later in the run to, to run well. Um, yeah. So I guess, um, definitely using a few, a lot more hacks and, um, I wouldn't call them shortcuts, but just, uh, trying different approaches to, to try and stimulate what is stimulate what you would get from a four to five hour training day into two hours or 90 minutes. You've got to try some different things and use, be a lot more creative yeah when when you do those kinds of the fueling um changes to training so training on low carbs or no carbs perhaps do you can you 
describe some specifics around that? Do you also do them fasted and with very limited or or no carbs and how how often would you do that uh, in in a week let's say yeah again like uh, typically um try and get some metabolic testing done with these athletes and if if they are very carb dependent you know i typically wouldn't push someone into a low carb session for more than two hours but if it's up to 90 minutes two hours i think there can be a lot of benefit and the body sort of um not having too much um not having just sugar piling into the bloodstream. So there's the process of um, mobilizing fat is sort of a little bit stronger and uh, or a lot stronger. Uh, so, you know, that that would be a, a typical approach. We, you know, if an athlete's hungry, you know, I don't like athletes waking up and if they're starving, not eating. You don't want to – there's a, a level of stress you don't want to go to. I mean, we're not, we're not looking to um, – to do anything too extreme, you know, but I always say, okay, let's go for a more of a protein fat dominant breakfast instead of, you know, you, instead of eating your oats or whatever you might have as a, um, as that approach. But at the same time, uh, if, if it's a high intensity session and, and, you know, we're relying on glycolysis as the, as the main process for fueling the intervals, I certainly wouldn't do that in a low carb state. Um, so I guess it's, it's something that keeps evolving as I learn more and, and the science keeps changing i think it's a it's a hard one to really uh know that you're 100 correct on because it, there's so many different opinions out there and um but i think based on what does the, i sort of look at it what does the session mainly require and what are we trying to achieve you know and if it's metabolic benefits and getting better at burning fat for fuel um or even if it's just potentially for for weight loss for athletes that are you know that are um, more in it for health and fitness, then we might go a, a lot more lower carb, obviously easier intensity sessions. And then if the session's target is, um, you know, more around tolerating lactate or clearing, you know, higher intensity anaerobic intervals or um, even just close to sub-threshold intervals, we um, will include a lot more carbs and teach the body to utilize that. Yeah, no, that's that's all good. And uh, one other question, general question about training is uh, or what are some, and this could be age groupers or pros, whatever you feel is relevant and on your mind. Are there any common mistakes that you see, see around when you, when you work with athletes or just in general, social media, media in general, that you would warn against? <laughs> I, um, I think the number one mistake that certainly I've done and I see many others do is they compare their training with everyone else's and, oh, this guy's doing X number of hours or this this much TSS. And it's really just not comparable because, uh, for example, especially everyone now is obsessed with what the Norwegians are doing, you know, Gustav and Blumenfeld. And, you know, especially one of, one of my pros keeps talking about it. I'm like, you have a child. You're working part time. <laughs> your your ability to recover and and I'm like I'm all about do as much as you can as long as the benefits keep coming and you can recover from it. But if you have a very different outside training environment, uh, you're not you're not finishing the session and getting a fed and a massage and then going to sleep. It's you can't compare. It's just not. There's no point trying to target thirty plus hour training weeks. So. The comparisons against each other, I think it's not even even more than just in training. I think it's a good lesson for life. You know, you, if you start flicking through Instagram all the time, you feel pretty miserable because you're seeing everyone's perfect world. 
And the same goes for training. I, I actually stopped, you know, once I had my third third child and life was just crazy. Um, and my, my wife went back to full-time work and I was like, okay, I've I got to stop following all these pros who don't don't have a life like me because it's, it's ruining my enjoyment of the sport. Instead of just looking at what I can do to get better, I'm constantly comparing with their, you know, their professional existence of eat, sleep, train, which, you know, I certainly had a few years of that, so I can't complain. Um, but the comparison does nothing for you and uh, I think it's something that athletes need to be very careful of. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And uh, is there anything that you've changed your mind about in regard to the training in the last few years, and that do you that you view differently now than you used to? Yeah, I mean, the diet one is huge. Um, you know, I've gone through the whole spectrum of. I tend to take things to the extreme, no matter what I'm, whatever I'm doing. So, and uh, you know, I've been through that real high carb phase, um, then super low carb, and now obviously I'm, I've landed somewhere in the middle. Um, with most of a lot of what I've become, uh, you know, I used to have quite extreme opinions on. I've now realizing the answers tend to lie lie in the middle when you've got certain scientists you know, really spouting one one direction on things and then the others, the total opposite. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm learning to just look for the answer somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah, it's always, it is changing a lot. And I think, um, uh, I think I, I've even, even five, six years ago, I used to think this is the approach that needs to be taken for an athlete to do well. And now I'm learning, no, this is, that's the approach for, that particular athlete because of where they're at and learning to just really have a different approach for different athletes is, um, you know, every coach talks about it. Oh, we, we personalize based off where an athlete's at. But when I, when I look at people's trainings and training in the groups and uh, I don't think many coaches actually do that as much as they say. So Mm. trying to do that is, is something that, um, has become super important to me. Yeah. Um, Now, uh, I would like to discuss racing a bit more. And uh, yeah, that's something that is always fun to to hear, especially from somebody with with your racing experience. So the first question I have on the topic of racing is, is how would you approach race selection? And in particular, this might be mostly relevant to to pros that are trying to make a living off of racing but also in some cases for age groupers if you're for example your aim is to qualify for a championship event and then race selection might play a big part in that so yeah what are some tips you would give for race selection yeah i think um a lot of my failures <laughs> as with uh have influenced how i feel about it so with with a few of my pros who i think have the have a real ability to to do well in the in the, the biggest races um I, I sort of say to them, I remind them, okay, what's the number one goals for the year? And then we have to, with so many racing options available, we just have to focus on that and accept that some races you just cannot be at, at your best or even close to your best. So, um, you know, a classic example, and I don't think they'll mind me using this, is, you know, Sam Appleton was, um, you know, his goal this year was to do well in Kona. And, you know, with the PTO race yesterday, we knew after Cairns, he, he sort of rushed back into training, um, which is very rare for Sam, but he sort of ignored a, a little bit of what I was what I was encouraging and added in a lot more sessions. And then classic uh, post-Ironman fatigue set in. He's been really struggling since. So, But, you know, we had to say going into the PTO race, it was, um, you know, be realistic and, and know that he wasn't at his best because he's, 
he's still recovering from an Ironman and and we need him to actually lose a bit of fitness after that race and, and fully freshen up, especially, you know, hormonally and, and get ready for another big block before Kona. So prioritising what races are the most important is is uh, is something that we 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 do and then we work back from there and um and sometimes using with so many race options sometimes realizing a race can just be for training or for um or just because then you know it's just a payday but you're not going to be at the best at your best um the other thing is i guess the, the personality type some some races some athletes just find racing incredibly emotionally draining and you know they need to be sort of held back from racing too often because it, there's only so many races a year they can go really deep or the stress of um, the stress of racing can just add up and, and they start to almost lose the enjoyment of the, of the whole process. And then you have other athletes who just thrive off racing. Yeah. So understanding, you know, and then with those races that re- those athletes that really need to race, they love it. It keeps them motivated. You still have to be, I think, uh, cognizant that you don't want them to, to destroy their consistency in training so we might i might make sure they're a bit tired going into the race it's a it's a training hit out even if they don't want it to be one (laughs) um so yeah personality type plays a huge role uh with that um and then obviously yeah the 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 prize money factor and um bonuses and all that sort of thing for the pros is 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 a hard one because having been in the sport for for a long time now and and seeing what can happen when you just chase the prize money the straight up prize money especially now with um some of the very lucrative races that are available it, it's great and the money's good but it's very short term it's a nice big hit into your bank account but let's if you can get an athlete to go top five in kona you're talking about sponsorship deals that can last for five or six years after that um and so trying to explain the the bigger picture benefits of nailing a world championships a world championship is uh is a part of that process and um trying to advise them around that that that's an interesting question especially in light of we're recording this just for uh context the day after the the pto canadian open uh the the well the, the monday after the weekend of racing there and uh, do you see sponsorship contracts uh changing in the next couple of years so that they will uh, weigh these pto races as highly or at least in the same ballpark as something like a kona uh, which it, up to, up until now has been like the the main thing 70.3 words of course is also big but but nothing has been close to kona as, as far as i can tell yeah i don't know um you know watching you know i'll be brutally honest watching the pto race i love what they're trying to do i think i still think we need to find a way to make it more entertaining you can still have a a long course style race, but I'd love to see it more on a lapped course and people getting lapped out. And, you know, just, you know, when I watch the super league, if I was, if I had nothing to do with triathlon, I could imagine that I would still love to watch it. And I feel like we need to be a bit more brave with making the long course for those PTO races more creative. And I think if the, uh, and, and they're always changing and I think they will, like I would love to see Collins Cup, you know, a team relay a bit like the Sub 7 project with country versus country because I think it creates real interest. Um, you know, the zero national, the zero nationalistic, nationalist, nationalistic, elastic, what am I saying? National pride for um, athletes, you know, representing rest of the world as a category. Like it, that doesn't get anyone excited or interested. So 
I feel like there's it's so it's really close and and we're just so lucky to have that huge investment coming in. Um, but I'd like to see some pretty brave decisions around making it more entertaining and then a hundred percent I think it could could drastically change the way um, sponsors view those races. Um, if you're getting eyeballs on logos and and it's creating great media interest, then it'll make a big difference. But at the moment, Kona still draws the most eyeballs, so sponsors uh, really really weight that the most heavily still. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess it will be all about the eyeballs, really, because I mean I don't think Kona is any more fun than uh, the PTO uh, Canadian Open was yesterday, even though they are the same format. But yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see how the next couple of years pan out. I do agree that yeah, to, for the general person who is not like a super triathlon fan, then it probably something probably needs to happen to make it a bit more entertaining still, considering it is a very long event. Yeah, for sure. I think. Um... You know, both Kona and the PTO races is the hard part is um, getting more coverage without putting more motorbikes on the course because, you know, anyone who's raced knows that it drastically changes the outcomes if you start getting motorbikes too close to races. And, you know, I'd love to see a tight course where you could just have heaps of drones up and actually mm. filming filming the battle going on between sixth and eighth place if, in case there's nothing happening up front. Like um, if there's nothing happening up front, you can flash to it occasionally, but we don't want to see that someone just solo time trialing for four hours, three, you know, two hours. So um, yeah. I think, you know, I, yeah, I think we've got to be a bit harsher with, with athletes and, you know, if they get lapped out, they get lapped out. It's, it's, um, it's yeah. about the entertainment more than, you know, the, uh, the athletes' um, self-esteem. <laughs> yep, yeah. Um, going back to to race selection, and, and one question on that as well is: How do you view strengths and weaknesses in terms of course profiles, environmental conditions, and so on? Does that play a really big part in how you would advise people to select their races? Yeah, for sure. It, it also plays a big role into how you would train for a race. You know, I think. Um, you know, I can use myself as an example, but Mont-Tremblant in 2014, you know, I I looked at what the front group swim group would be and it was, you know, Gomez was racing Fredino and I just thought, well, I'm not going to make this swim group. I'm going to have to really train my bike to another level to be able to ride up to them. As it turned out, I actually made the swim group but then was so flustered and excited that I didn't put my wetsuit in the in the tub and then lost the group because <laughs> I had to go back and put it in. But I had the bike legs to s- sort of catch them by 60 kilometres. Um, and then, of course, that came with the consequence of, you know, not running particularly well and I f- finished seventh. But I still think training for the bike for that race on a hilly course where I didn't think I'd make the group, it drastically changed the way I would uh, I trained for the race. And then looking at, you know, two years later at Sunshine Coast, um, I expected to make the group. And I knew it would be a bit of a pack ride. And, and so I, I actually trained differently. Um, you know, the run was super important. And I actually even raced, you know, three kilos lighter just because the run was, I knew the run would be the, the crucial part of the race. So it, it plays a huge role from my own experience. I can, you know, say to my athletes, you know, the ones that are going to St. George this year, I'm like, you got to be able to bike like a total machine on that course. Um, there's no hiding. It's a tough race, and then and run strong more than, more than you know being more of an ITU prep where you just train your run to it to an, the highest level it can be. Uh, so 
yeah, it plays a huge role. Um, I think it, it is hard to, there are, you know, the harsh reality as a coach, sometimes you have to say to an athlete, this course isn't going to suit your strengths and we don't have enough time to change those strengths. Um, but it's, it's the conversation that has to happen sometimes. Yeah. What would you, uh, what, what kind of tapering would you, would you do for, and we're assuming here that this is a race that you're actually targeting, like a key race for you. What's, what's your view on that? Uh, I have to say that tapering as a coach is the thing that perplexes me the most <laughs> and I wish I had the right answer for because as as you've probably seen, you can do one a, a taper approach for an athlete and they have the race of their life. You try the same taper next time and it doesn't work um, because there's so many factors with external stresses with the travel, with how they're feeling, how much pressure they're putting on themselves, you know, <laughs> is the hotel they're staying at noisy like there's just a lot to factor in and so it's the one it's the one part of the program where I really say to the athlete you know I'm happy to give you some control over this here so, you know if I've scheduled some little um maintenance intervals you know race specific intervals in race week and you're feeling exhausted or you haven't been sleeping well I want you just to reduce it you know by 50% or uh take it out altogether um it's it's the one part of coaching that really bothers me because I, I always feel so nervous and unsure of um, what the best approach is on, on that taper based off, mm. based off the so many factors that, that you can't control as a coach or, or the athlete can't really control sometimes. Yeah. What would you say if I say that I have the opinion that a lot of athletes do too much in the taper period in the last two weeks before the race even both in terms of volume and and intensity and partially for the reasons you mentioned there with traveling and and additional stress you need to get your bike fixed and cleaned and packed and, and all of that like there's a lot of things going on you need to take time off work potentially if you're an age grouper or a part-time working pro so yeah i, I that's kind of a something that i'm looking at it more often than not if something goes wrong with it it's i i would say Basically, I think that it's more common that athletes do too, way too much in the in the taper period, and that they they don't to do enough. That's kind of something that I think. Yeah, so I uh, I think that the, I agree with you in that I think they do way too much, particularly between seven and fourteen days out. I think um, a lot of athletes go into panic mode, and sometimes that's their biggest week of the prep, and yeah. and then you know that they'll do the same. Same, they, they tend to rest up pretty well from five, six days out, but they just forget that that deep fatigue from from doing a really stressful week seven to fourteen for a lot of athletes, you don't shake that out because you're then traveling five days out. Your your recovery from that week's compromised. Um, yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. I think sometimes too little, um, three or four, the last four days, you know, to the point they're just eating just loading up on carbs and getting sluggish and feeling like it's too big a change from what their body's used to but then certainly you know my typical approach even for pros would be we we the two the seven to 14 days out we might go from you know if they're typical tss or i'll use hours even though i don't like using hours if they're typically 20 to 25 hours weeks we'd, we'd normally do around 15 hours two seven to 14 days out for a pro and then you know seven to eight hours in race week would be um certainly what worked for myself and a few other pros that i've worked with in terms of really freshening up for a race um yeah so yeah that that would be the typical approach 
Yeah, that's very similar to what what I would go with, kind of a seventy five to eighty percent in that seventy fourteen days out week, and then forty to fifty percent. Or 40. this depends on the yeah. If it's, if it's somebody doing twenty hours, of course, if it's an age group doing nine hours, you wouldn't go to forty percent or potentially not even fifty percent. But but yep. for somebody doing a fair amount, yeah, I I would go for something in that in that region as well. Yeah, great. Um and. Uh, yeah, w- w- regarding how to get the most out of yourself on race day and and actually get a performance, uh, what what are some some other things that you think are important to to do? It could be anything really from a psychological perspective, or you know, what 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 did you find worked well for you as an athlete? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think it's no secret that like sort of I was a very anxious racer, and the years where I got that under control. Um, I had my best best years it combined with you know sort of the, the time of my life where I could train and rest as, as well as I could but also was um, just in a good place mentally and I think uh, the the it's very cliche but all of my best races would come after I was doing some meditation and mindfulness pretty much daily for the sort of anywhere from 15 to 30 days going into a race and and, and then also doing some uh, visualizations um you know the, the science is pretty amazing on it actually when you look at how the power of visualizations and then also the, the way you can change your brain now they're showing with you know daily meditation i think athletes who aren't doing especially athletes who are like me who get pretty highly strung and stressed out about race performance um i think that it's a it's a given that it needs to be included um at a minimum from the start of the taper but ideally, <laughs> ideally ongoing. Yeah, hmm. yeah that's that's really, uh, really, really good. What about in the race itself? Did you have any any tricks or tricks to to help you through, or that you've seen work well for efforts you coach? Uh, like so, it's just general tips for for racing. General, general. Well, let's to to achieve your potential. Like we're maybe not talking so much about. We we will talk, get to pacing next. So maybe more psychological and. And yeah, as- yeah, so I found even that visualization or that um, that you would do pre-race, you'd actually be. I would get athletes to visualize. Okay, what are some lo- likely scenarios? And I'm talking bad likely scenarios and good likely scenarios. And how will you mentally approach it? So, what are you going to do when you get a flat tire? You know, what's the response going to be? What are you going to do if you drop your gel, your um, your bottle with all your concentrated calories in there? Getting people to actually think about it and have a little bit of a visualization and plan um, can totally change someone's race when it actually happens. And you know, there's there's great to have your ideal scenario and visualize that. I think that's important. But then also working through what's what's the scenario when you miss the front group? How are you gonna what's how are we gonna play the next forty kilometers? What's the approach um, that you're gonna take? And uh, so that that's a big part of what we work through and, and the notes that I'll typically give someone, you know, four or five days out, if you, they need to think about these things um, and what their mindset will be. You know, mantras, I think, are really important. Not, you know, the mantra in itself is, is just a great way to, I think, stay neutral and keep your mindset neutral in a race. I'm not a big fan of people, athletes trying to stay positive throughout a race. I think it takes too much energy. <laughs> I just think you've got to dumb yourself down and, and try and, just think about what you need to be doing right there and then. So it's sort of that, again, just being able to be in the moment is, a, is a, I think, one of the most performance-enhancing things you can have on race day. 
Um, as soon as you start, and I'm an emotional racer, and I think when I learned to control my emotions and not not be angry, not be upset about what had happened in that race, or it's just like, what do I need to be doing right here, right now? They were certainly when I had my best races. Mm, yeah. So so let's discuss pacing, uh, which is another very big component, of course, of how you will do on race day. And uh, this might be, yeah, let's let's discuss age groupers first. Uh, what, what tips would you give regarding pacing for age groupers? Yeah, it's funny. I, I find um, there's not that much difference in the percentage of age groupers compared to pros who are good at pacing. I feel like it's some, there's just a, I don't know what the, what the ratio would be, but some athletes are just great at pacing. Uh, you say, Hey, I want you to go for this, this feeling, you know, the first 5k of the run, feel like you have another gear and they nail it. And then you say that to some athletes, age grouper or pro, and they still can't get it right. And they're the athletes. Um, you know, I might, for, for an athlete who really hates wearing a watch, I might say, you know, I don't want you breathing every time the right arm comes through for the first K. We might do breathing, you know, every third step or that sort of thing. Um, but for certain athletes, even one of my pros who's incapable of pacing correctly, I have to force him to wear a watch <laughs> and just say, this is the number you're doing. Once you get to, I find once athletes are at, you know, past seven, eight, 10 kilometers, they're sort of um, their pacing ability starts to come to fruition, but before that, there's just a, sometimes there's a real inability to know what level of um, intensity they're at. And we've been doing more testing now, especially I've become fascinated with how poorly how poor athletes are at pacing the swim and looking at lactate levels at perceived efforts in the swim. So I want you to do you know a zone two. 800 meter and then they get out and they're well into zone three when you look at the lactate or i want you to do an ironman paced you know 600 meters and and again i'm finding people are just so often very close to anaerobic threshold um so i think almost educating people on and consistently showing them no you're not actually at the right intensity you're going too hard in the, the swim is the hard one because you don't have the number in front of you um so you've really got to teach people what that feeling is that they're searching for. And then, uh, and then, yeah, for some people, it's just a matter of really being very specific um, with a watch <laughs> and a heart rate limit or a, or a pace limit for the first, first five to eight kilometers. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what about, what, well, first of all, I, I just had to say on the swim and uh, educating uh, athletes about their, their actual levels and abilities. One good test for athletes that don't have access to lactate testing is to use a Finis tempo trainer and just set it to, let's say you have somebody preparing for an Ironman, tell them to do like a, okay, I want to do a 3,800 meter continuous swim in the pool. Uh, you can use the tempo trainer, set it to a pace that will feel really easy for you at the start. And then go through it and and yeah, just think about how how it starts feeling after one thousand, two thousand, three thousand, and and at the end of the swim. And and in a lot of cases, that you actually find that what felt really really easy when when you started starts feeling quite tough when you get to three thousand meters, especially and and to the end. Which just uh, I, I think it shows also that the swim is a bit different. In we don't necessarily have the same base uh, endurance or aerobic capacity or metabolic uh development as in biking and running but but that's something that you need to know and be aware about when it comes to pacing the swim correctly as you said yeah absolutely um yeah it, it's it's fascinating to me that 
uh, so many athletes who are having issues on the bike and run, they're the athletes, when I do the testing in the swim, they're the athletes who mispace the swim the most. So I mm. think, uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a lot to be said for learning, for really training your athletes in knowing what the right intensity is and, and being able to let let the group go when it's when necessary or in age group ranks just yeah especially in Ironman you know five minutes lost in the swim could equal 20 minutes quicker on the run for some people <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah what, what about the bike uh pacing on the bike and for age groupers still like is that what what would you typically say to them would you be a bit conservative with bike pacing or um yeah any general tips there yeah I think um it depends on the distance obviously and uh but and on and on the athlete and what their strengths are but um it's much easier to get people to pace correctly on the bike because they've got so many metrics in front of them so um you know it's the, the hard part is um the hard part about the bike is everyone knows how much advantage there is with the groups even 12 meters apart 10 meters apart whatever they are so it's uh you know, sometimes an athlete has to make a decision. Um, you know, do I do I push hard for for five kilometers to catch that group up, a hunt, up ahead, and then you know legally ride with the massive assistance of that of that group, um, which is you know something why I've always argued it needs to be closer to fifteen to twenty meters, <laughs> twenty meter gaps to to make it fair. Um, but yeah, so typically. Um, you know, if you look at the pacing, it's it's not that complicated in a triathlon. It's it's you know, Craig Alexander used to always use the uh, expression: "You've got three cups, and you got one jug of water." Um, if you just if you want the three cups to be pretty equal, you've just got to spread the water out equally and and not fill one cup too much because then the other two the other two are going to suffer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what about on the pro side? That's where race dynamics, of course, start to play a huge role and especially if you want to win the race or be on the podium you will probably have to take some risks unless you're <laughs> really the best in the world uh, but most most athletes will have to take some risks and uh, but at the same time a lot of athletes ruin their races by taking too many risks and they uh, yeah that it blows up in their faces so what yeah, would you suggest I think, there i think it's the biggest um misunderstanding from age groupers who turn who look at the who are racing pros you know sometimes an age grouper will beat right up there with the pro race and i I really have to argue it's such a different dynamic uh and like you said there's certain points in a race which can um sensible pacing sort of has to go out the window because it's uh you might have like there's a lot of other factors to to take in you know one of the biggest ones is what the media are doing you know if there's media with motorbikes and you're suddenly um, the front three guys with a motorbike filming diagonally next to them can suddenly the guys that are there are getting you know one and a half two kilometers per hour advantage and if you're you've suddenly got to get get to that position um it's it's just the nature of pro racing is there's a lot more dynamics and i'm sure even in the tour de france which you know i'm sure you've been glued to it as well um, that that would be a huge part of all their their tactics is um, they know when to attack. If the motorbike gets too close, you suddenly see them shoot off out of the peloton. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a part, but also just, um, the, yeah, the, the, I think um, staying with certain athletes, uh, knowing that 
there's there's the advantage there with with being with the group. Um, it's it's a lot more complicated than just let's just go for the the best evenly paced swim bike run run that I can. It's funnily enough for a lot of athletes, I still think in Ironman, even in the pros, that would probably pay off in many cases to the fastest time they could do. And certainly my own, I haven't done many Ironmans well, but the ones that I did do well, I literally went in with that approach and just stuck to my numbers and ignored, ignored everyone else. But for 70.3s, that certainly never worked out for me. I had to really race the race. Um, so it's a, it's a different dynamic the shorter you go, I think. Yeah, 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 and and probably also depending on what your goal is. So when when you are fighting for world championship titles, for example, you you have to take a lot of risk. But maybe 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 at this point in your career, uh, it it might sometimes be beneficial to to be a bit more yeah stay with you, stick to your own own plan and and not get too involved with what's going on. Yeah, the, I think so. And also, when you get older, <laughs> your ability to um, do that real top end surges and bounce back it, it does start to wane a little bit you know but you're uh at the same time i feel like your aerobic efficiency and endurance like certainly for myself i don't feel like that's dropped off at all it's just that that top end revs are not not the same as they used to be although i'm starting, yeah. to, try, starting to try to work on that a lot more now <laughs> so so how do so how do pe- uh, people and pro athletes or uh aspiring pro athletes improve this aspect of pacing and race dynamics is it just about racing and learning you know failing a few times and getting up again and and learning from those experiences or are there any or is it thinking through different race scenarios in advance as you discussed before with the visualization are there any other things they can do I, i think knowing knowing the limits and how long you could you can do that so we might have a strategy of okay we can do you know, up to this much time at threshold or above, you know, threshold. And then, and then you've, you know, you go with that group for this, but if it's more than 10 minutes and that, and the pace hasn't dropped back into a reasonable zone, you know, you're not going to be able to run well. So we let them go. Um, I think there's, yeah, I think that, that, that would be a, a big part of it. And then um, I had another thought, but I'll, I'll leave it there for, for that. I think that's the, probably the biggest thing is setting up some some limitations and guidelines around around the pacing to know okay that's that's where you can go to and where you can't but also specificity plays a huge role so you know whereas an age grouper we might do their specific ironman sets might be you know we're doing four times 30 minutes at at ironman power um for a pro it could be four times 30 with us you know if it's for kona with a spike up uh, you know every 10th minute you do a minute at um closer to threshold to F- closer to ftp or even above to simulate what it's going to be like on that rolling terrain with the constantine effect and having to stay out of draft zones and then surge back up and uh so that that teaching the body to to just be specific with what the actual requirements will be um is a big is a big part of of i think preparing properly yeah and the final question on racing is uh, race race scheduling in terms of how many races to do in a season, how many races you can do and still recover well and perform. And again, this is probably a question that is uh, you can tackle from both the age group side and the pro side because they are probably going to be quite uh, different answers. Yeah, I, 
In some ways, yes, but in many ways, a lot of the pros are actually working nearly as much as age groupers and balancing a lot of things, contrary to what everyone thinks. Um, so I, I think um, for age groupers, the, the biggest factor is with how much racing and, and how intense they can take it is how much can their family tolerate. <laughs> so it's about how do, we, how do we keep you in the sport and from everyone else burning out um, and getting a bit fed up with it. So that that's a big factor. Um, I think, you know, obviously their, how much their, their work, you know, when you're in the middle of an Ironman block, there's, there's no way other things in your life don't suffer a little bit as much as you try not to. So, you know, how much can their work tolerate um, a little bit of a drop off on that, that side of things. Um, so there's a lot of factors, I guess, just around the person's life and the external um, things that matter as well. And I feel like as a coach, I spend a lot of my time convincing athletes to race less, not more. <laughs> certainly, certainly on the on the longer races, um, and and even convincing athletes that you know, hey, there's no, there's this sort of perception that short course is for some reason less of a less of a challenge, less of a triathlon. I'm really working hard to try and change that perception with my athletes. And hey, you can you can it'll actually help your Ironman career long-term if you can if you can keep racing and stay motivated and we, we spend some time throughout the year working on short course races. Um, and then for pros, I think race selection is a hard one because the financing, the finances is a huge factor and what what's going to be the best for um, setting, you know, making money and, and, and making sure you're not going backwards as well as, you know, it's a balance between peaking for the key races but still having enough money from doing some of the other races to be able to to get to the key races so mm-hmm. i'd say for most pros um you know apart from the top top five you know five ten fifteen maybe uh money is a huge factor and and balancing chasing prize money over nailing the key races and then for age groupers i think the biggest factors are family work and work right yeah um just a couple of other questions before and then the rapid fire question. So uh, one question that I want to ask you just as a, as a coach, is there anything in particular that you're focused on right now as part of your own coaching, something that you're particularly interested in or yeah, doing some research in or, or so, or like that, something like that? Yeah, I think um, my main interest now is trying to get more face-to-face time with my athletes to do more uh, lactate testing, finding out specifically where, what we need to work on um that's the downside of online coaching is i I feel like i want to get more time with athletes basically even even um you know whenever we run camps it's sometimes you just pick up some basic things like wow your bike position's horrible (laughs) or or that swim technique we can fix this um so the challenge for me is yeah trying to find ways to do more face-to-face coaching um that's I'd say that's the biggest my uh, challenge, but also the thing that I'm trying to work on the most with uh, is getting around and, and spending more time with athletes. Yeah, and uh, if you could give three pieces of advice for listeners of the podcast, anything that would could help them improve their triathlon performance, what would that be? Now we're running. Ah, oh, okay. So I think. Um, Giving the coach time and building, having some trust that it could work. I think, I mean, you would have seen it too. You, you 
you go through the process of getting an athlete started and they're not getting results in <laughs> straight away and they're getting they're frustrated. So time uh committing if you're going to commit to a coach give them the give them the amount of time that's needed to see the changes and and fully fully commit otherwise don't go with them in the first place um three pieces that i think on a nutrition perspective there's so much um so much conflicting advice out there that my general rule of thumb is you know if it's taken a lot of human intervention to make the food edible then it's probably not that healthy. <laughs> so outside of training, just eat real food. Um, and, you know, I'm not a big fan of diets or, you know, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're not, wait till you're really hungry again. Um, third piece of advice is uh, learn to take learn to take time off. Um, I, th- I think we lose, we lose perspective on how much we train as triathletes and how intense it is. You know, like I... I look now at what would be a taper week and in my first few years in triathlon, that would have been a massive week for me. And so it's it's learning to really let the body bounce back, especially when you start doing a lot of blood tests on athletes. You see the toll that is taken on the athlete when they get towards the end of an Ironman prep and how important, you know, um, how important taking a month off, six weeks off is to really let the body come back. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my quick three pieces of advice yeah awesome and uh finally uh, the rapid fire question so take just one sentence to answer each of these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports Ooh, um i really like andy coggins training and racing with power um i think i bought it when i first got a i think he might have had an edition out pretty early on when i first got my power meter for, um but yeah, it's it's just I like the approach, and it's it's always seemed to work pretty well with using his principles with um, improving athletes' cycling. Yeah, uh, and what's an important habit that you've benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally? I think as a outside um, triathlon, I'm pretty poor at planning, <laughs> and I found that the more I, the better I got at planning with training and racing and uh, even travel, the better my racing went. And you know, if uh, so, yeah, I'd say putting the time in to plan properly, and um, I, I learned to really enjoy the process even more than the racing. And I think a lot of that was about having a plan and ticking off the steps. Um, just having a big goal without a plan just gets it overwhelming and can be a bit disappointing, but having the step-by-step plan and is what, what's exciting for me. And it, it's definitely, it definitely paid off. And when things get too chaotic and all the planning goes out the window, um, everything suffers. <laughs> and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Um, uh, <laughs> there's probably two people. I think my wife's very inspiring. The amount of stuff, things she gets through each day, as a she's very uh she's a she's a doctor and um you know quite well well respected in where we live and just you know not financially motivated at all she does a lot of good social um things you know for the way the way she operates um and then craig alexander as an athlete was just a you know a lot of the pros i grew up looking up to he sort of i think more even as as he stepped away and slowly stepped away from being fully focused athlete, I think I grew, uh, my respect for him grew even further because uh, he just showed he's a, a good human um, 
and was able to actually step back at the right time and put it back into his family and and uh, I just got a lot of respect for that. I think it changes depending on what stage of life you're at, but he's uh, he inspired me to, um, you know, for someone to be at the top of the sport, you know, there's no doubt you've got to be very self-absorbed. Uh, I wouldn't say selfish because you're making a lot of money for your family at the time, but then knowing when to step back, it'd be very hard, and I think he you know, was able to do that in a, in a good way. Yeah. And uh, finally, uh, where can people find you, follow you, learn more about your coaching and everything that you got going on? Yeah, well, um, we've got our website is rpgcoaching.com, uh, my personal website in timreed.com.au. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. That's where we sort of do most of our athlete updates. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, that's basically where we're at with yep. where, um, that's yeah where i try and try and be active is more on um clint my coaching partner and i we do most of our we most of our updates go onto social media so you can follow us on there yeah yeah i'll put the links in the show notes and uh thank you so much tim for taking the time it was uh, great to have a chat and uh yeah i enjoyed it a lot and i'm sure the listeners will as well thank you it was great to chat I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes and all the relevant links on scientifictriathlon.com. And remember, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, the new training plan, the advanced sprint distance training plan. Uh, Find out all the details on uh, scientifictriathlon.com forward slash plans. And remember that you can get a 60% discount until the 14th of August. So uh, only this week to take advantage of that. And remember our training camps, Mallorca and the Algarve in 2023 in March and January, respectively. Again, go to scientifictriathlon.com to read about them and uh, register if you're interested or email me if you have any questions. Next Monday, I interview Dr. Christian Chung on the topic of CBD for endurance athletes. This is uh, These products are getting more and more popular and we'll discuss what the state of the evidence is regarding the use of CBD, but also the associated risks, which are primarily uh, anti-doping related. And that is a very important risk to consider whether you're, you are a professional or an amateur. So definitely an, an episode worth listening to. And uh, finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation if you want to refine that strategy further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of their products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses. And use the promo code that you can get on roka.com for slash TTS for 20% off your entire Roka order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft.